That was so good. Amen. So good. Let's just go to the benediction. How about that? That's, that's good stuff right there. I don't, know, I don't know what else we got for you today, but um, let me invite you to stand for me as, as stand together as we uh, read God's Word together this morning. Katie's already read the first half in our Psalter reading earlier, what we're going to cover. I'm going to read the second half in Psalm 2, so we're going to go then. We're going to read the entire 12 verses together. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those, all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, happy summer. Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial marking of the beginning of a new season. And for many of us, school's wrapping up and going to look forward to hopefully some much needed, for most of us, recreation, slow down, rest during the next uh, couple of months, and I know that we're looking forward to that as well in and, and the Agnew household and, um, and everything, but as we, as we kind of mark this new uh, season, we're going to take a little bit of a pivot in our preaching over the next couple of months as well. Um, we're going to take a break from our series in 1 Corinthians and pick back up in chapter 7 in August, um, in which will be our text and going through marriage, um, but we wanted to spend a few weeks just setting our minds on worship of God. And so we're going to do a series, as you see on the screen here, a series through the Psalter, a summer in the Psalter that will take us through selected psalms over the course of um, the next several weeks. And so me and join with a, a, a couple of our, a few of our elders who will help me preach through a few of these over the course of the next um, few weeks. And I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while and Maybe it might be a regular habit for us going forward. I don't know. We will find out. But we will do it for the next 11 weeks and walk through selected psalms. Um, it's hard to underestimate, if you've been around the church most of your life, if you've been in a good church, hopefully a Bible-preaching church, at least minimally, it's hard to underestimate the role of the psalms in the life of the church throughout history. And the question for us might be why. Why is it that the psalms play such a preeminent role in the life of the church? Why is it that if you go back through history, when you go back through uh, the usage of the reformers, the Protestant reformers, and all, even go back to the church fathers, why do the Psalms always rise to a, to a, to a really high level in the life of the church? And, and, um, and, and these, this collection of songs and poems that are Old Testament, and yet somehow or another they've remained such a, a, a centerpiece of Christian worship. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to do, I have kind of two agendas. I want to introduce 
the series in Psalms by answering that question, at least the best that I can. And then we're going to jump into Psalm 1 and 2 to, to think through the, the, the kind of gateway that the Psalms in, uh, invite us through to start actually worshiping God. But that that this, this organized uh, uh, five-book liturgy, which we'll talk about here in a moment, is, a, is an invitation of God to worship Him rightly and to worship Him with our whole selves, all of us, all of ourselves. And so that's something I'm really excited about. So I want to do is take three things I want to talk about just briefly about the book of Psalms, the, the collection of Psalms, the Psalter. That's what, we, that's what they, it's officially called, the Psalter. And hopefully by the time I'm done with that portion of it, before we get into Psalm 1 and 2, um, you will find it, uh, hopefully you'll come to appreciate it deeply for yourself and maybe think about the, the role of the Psalms as you do it devotionally, but also why we employ a Psalter reading every week and and, and why we will, going forward, begin to start singing more psalms in our worship uh, order on Sunday mornings and, and things like that. So here's the first thing I want us to, to note and think about as to why the Psalter is so important to us. Well, the first one is that the Psalter is a collection of, of diverse songs and poems. Now, you might think, okay, great, thanks for the interesting factoid there, Pastor. But it's 150 diverse songs, and they do two things more than pretty much any other text in Scripture does. They engage our hearts, and it allows a, an expression of ourselves, our emotions to, to God. And so there's something in the heart of God and the way that He gives us the Psalms that, that causes people to bring their hearts to Him and express their need to Him. Something sometimes we're very uncomfortable doing, are we not? And so when you think about engaging our hearts... The Psalms invite us and call us to love and adoration of God for who He is. The Psalms also call us to dependence upon God, to trust God. Over and over and over as we walk through the tech, this, tech, this wonderful uh, collection of Psalms, if you were to spend time reading it, you'd find that that would be the, the repeated refrain. In the midst of deep grief, in the midst of deep pain, in the midst of hardship, anger, whatever it may be, it always, it always run, drives us back to who is God, and reveals us these wonderful truths and calls us to love and adore Him. But, but here's the thing that I love about the Psalms is it, it doesn't just leave us there. Like it, it actually invites us to bring, like I said a minute ago, our whole selves to Him. Our griefs, our angers, our fears, our anxieties, our depressions. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this past week, and, and we were just kind of noting the fact that how, how common it is for pastors, just speaking on our little tribe, uh, to just kind of go through un inexplicable seasons of just blah, blue, depression. You don't really know. I mean, you have lots to make a thanks for, but you just kind of go through this. And I bet it's not just pastors alone. I bet that's probably a sentiment that is shared in this room this morning. And so this collection of diverse psalms and songs and hymns, if you want to use that word, is a collection from over like five to six centuries. It dates, it goes from as far back as Moses and it goes, of course, goes past David. And we know of at least five contributors by name that contributed to this wonderful 150-volume uh, 150 set of songs. And we know it's David's, about half of them. Seventy-five of them are attributed to David, King David. Then there's Korah, who has about 11 of them. Asaph, 12. Uh, Solomon, 2, that we know of. And Moses, 1. But here's the one thing that I find deeply encouraging. 50 of them, we're not really sure. We're not really sure where they are, but they were collected for our benefit. Now, why would that be important for us as we begin to think about the Psalms? I think what makes it important for us is to, it reminds us 
of the ordinary nature of the life of faith. It doesn't, take, it doesn't take celebrities, it doesn't take big names, it doesn't have to take big preachers to remind us that God is with the ordinary. He's with us in the ordinary places and spaces of life. He's in us in the ordinary worship of God's people. Um, the, 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 the not so, you know, sometimes I am attractive to the rest of the world. He's with us this morning in the midst of everything that you and I brought in here this morning. And, I, and I, trust me, I know, we all brought something in here this morning, good or bad. And so because it speaks to the ordinary nature of life, it, it says something about the universal experience of God's people across all spaces and times. And I find that very comforting. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm in my dark places or my deep places of, of, of struggle, I tend to go inside. I tend to get isolate. I tend to go, no one understands what's going on with me. Um, my God may not understand what's going on with me. And yet here is this hymn book right in the smack in the center of the bible we preach and it and it brings us to the face of god it brings us right for him in love and adoration but also meets us right where we are and it reminds us you're not alone i'm not alone i'm not facing these difficulties in in, in some kind of isolated lonely closet of my own making we're not alone so that's the first reason i would just say while the, the psalter is so important to us this morning Second reason is, is that the Psalter is indeed a structured liturgy, a structured worship, a structured guide, hymn book, if you will, a song book that guides God's people to worship Him rightly. Like This is not just some random collection of things that just meant a lot to the Israel, Israelite people, but it's actually structured in five books and it walks God's people through all this wonderful treasure trove of all the good things that God is and how he's revealed himself to us. And it's a spirit-guided process whereby God reminds his people in the midst of him revealing himself to us, in the midst of life's hard places. And Israel knew that, right? Israel knew that. But then God would then call, him to, call them to worship him in this structured liturgy, much of like what we would do here on Sundays. This structured liturgy... Um, and he reminds them through the Psalms, all the major theological themes that we see in the Old Testament and, frankly, into the New Testament because it's all revealed and finalized and fulfilled in Christ. All of these things are there to remind God's people of several things. Here's a few of them that you will be reminded of, as we, even the few that we'll cover this summer. One, God is sovereign and holy. That's all through the Psalms. It's a major theological theme. Creation is good and created by God, and He is ruler over all things. And, and creation is designed to bring God glory. Sin and rebellion. It, it reminds us that though God made everything good, mankind is, even though made in His image, has fallen and now lives lives separated from God and, in, and frankly, in active rebellion against God. Short of God's intervention to, to us in Christ, we are going to, we will be in that state forever. Election. That God, nonetheless, in spite of all that man has done to separate himself from God and be an act of rebellion against God, God himself has promised that he would call from among the descendants of Adam, who are all under, under sin and Adam, he's called and promised to say, I will make a people for myself from among them. And he'll do so through another theme, covenant. And he relates to this people he's calling out to himself. 
into himself and keeps, and he keeps them, and he keeps this covenant for them so that they might, until he returns, experience his unfailing presence and blessing in that covenant membership with himself. And then it's, the Psalms also keep our eyes looking forward. Eschatological is the big word there. And all that means is what's to come. The Psalms always say what you're experiencing now has an end. There's something better, someone better coming. It's why we can sing like we sang before we hear a couple, a few minutes ago, glorious day. It's why we can say, do we know when Jesus is coming? No, we do not. But we know he is. And he will bring finality to all that God has purposed in the world when he comes. So these five books are, are wonderfully constructed for God's people for our worship of him and to be used in Christian worship in varying ways so that God's people would know that as they are sojourning through the wilderness, that's what we are. We're pilgrims in a land that's not our home, and we're sojourning through this. And as we collectively gather as God's people, we worship God, and we, and we center ourselves upon Him, and we rest in Him, and reminding ourselves that this, this call to worship Him is real because He's not some distant, aloof um, uh, um, uh, God who's, who's separated from us, but that He makes Himself near to His people through the things I just mentioned above. And friends, as New Testament Christians, this is even more true of us here this morning. This is just for Old Testament believers. That everything, that, that true worship is complete and fulfilled in Christ and therefore fulfills the ultimate vision of what the Psalms were about in the first place. It drives us to Christ if we see them correctly. And this is what we're hoping to see in Psalm 1 and 2 here in a few minutes. See, the Psalm, the Psalter, is an invitation to God's people everywhere across the globe and to all the who would hear the good news of the message to sing a new song. That's what the Psalter is. It's reminding your people, sing a new song. Sing a new song of salvation. Sing a new song of a good and gracious God. Sing a new song of a sovereign God who has got everything in His hand. Sing a, sing, a, 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 sing a song to a God of justice who will make all things right. No matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're experiencing, this is the song that God's people sing until Jesus returns. Third thing that the Psalms offer us, in, in light of all the things we just said, it offers the worshiper, it offers you and I, those who know Christ this morning, to rest in God in, in spirit and truth on, in an ongoing way. See, the Psalter is for God's people. And as we'll see here in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 here in just a few minutes, the Psalter's not for those who don't know Christ. It's for the people who desire to live the blessed life, who long for the blessed life, but, can't, but the blessed life is unattainable to them without God's intervention. So the Psalter's only going to be good to the people of God and only going to offer rest to the people of God if they are the people of God. If they are resting in Christ. So it's not just for the Old Testament believer. It's for the New Testament believer even more than the Old Testament believer. In fact, it would say it was, it was made for that moment, but it pointed for something much greater beyond that moment to you and I and where we stand here today as we wait for Jesus. The one who seeks the paths of righteousness, not in himself, 
but in righteousness of Christ, we'll find eternal treasure trove of songs to sing to a great God until Jesus returns. The one who stands obstinately and defiantly against God's ways will find no help in the Psalms. None. You can read them for devotional material all you want to. You can read them for their poetic uh, nature, and you can inspire those kind of things, but they will offer no one any help if they're not in Christ. Christian worship always drives us back to God. It always drives us back to His character, His love, His grace, His mercy, and His presence with His people throughout this messed up life. This is why the Psalter is a multi-generational, a multi, um, uh, uh, has multi-generational relevance to us. The new covenant, that is what Christ accomplished, takes all that the Psalter offered to the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, who lived in hope of God's future promises and infuses the true nature of those in this present and ongoing hope that we have found in Christ. This is why the Psalter, as I mentioned a minute ago, has always played a huge part in Christian worship throughout the New Testament, primarily throughout the, the, the church history, especially recovered by the Reformed and Protestant churches. You just see this everywhere. That's why we do a Psalter reading every week, and like I said, we will have um, at least a psalm sung going forward in some capacity. So the main idea that is both going to help us for the whole series as well as in our time this morning as we now jump into Psalm 1 and 2, is this. In light of God's unfailing love and His unfailing faithfulness that is realized perfectly in Christ, the Psalter holds out for the people of God that there is always a song for the people of God to sing everywhere and in every situation, no matter what life throws at us. Would you just hold on to that, believer? Would you hold on to that, brother and sister, this morning? That in, in, in light of God's unfailing love and faithfulness fully realized in Christ, the Psalter holds out for you and I, the people of God, that we always have a song to sing, no matter what life throws at us. So let's go to Psalm 1 and 2. And let's consider this gateway, if you will. Because they work together. They don't work independently. I've already noted that the reason why we can't just take one of these is because both of these look like there's like a hinge here and you can't have the other without, you can't have one side of it without the other side of it, right? The whole Psalm, book of Psalms, this five books is a, weaved together this wonderful theology of God and reminds God's people along the way of who he is and why they should worship him. And this is important because as the Psalter begins in these first two psalms, um, it begins with critical information in these two psalms as to who the Psalter is for, and as I mentioned a minute ago, and who the Psalter is not for. They work together. They're a collective picture that's being painted. So then, there's a, two questions we're going to have to ask this morning. The first question is, who is the Psalter for and who is the Psalter not for? Well, let's go to Psalm 1. The psalmist clearly says the Psalter is for the blessed man. That's how he answers it, at least initially, that question. Who's it for? Well, it's for the blessed man. Blessed is the man 
Happy is the man, some translations may say, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the psalmist answers the question, who is the psalter for? He says it's for the blessed man, and he sets forth the picture negatively. And who is the blessed man? Well, he's the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, and he certainly does not sit in the seat of scoffers or, or, or mockers of God. You can see this intensifying progression here that, that the psalmist wants us to see. He doesn't walk with them, right? To walk is to associate, but, but to stand is to linger, and to sit is to embrace, Right? You're walking, maybe you're casually hearing all the things of the world, you stop to linger and stand, you're beginning to get tickled by it, but then when you sit, you begin to embrace it. And he says, this is not the blessed man's life. This is not what he is about. This is, this is, this is not what God would have for him. The blessed man is one who wisely avoids the path of the wicked. But then he states it positively. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed man is one who delights in the law of God. The blessed man is one who meditates on the law of God and finds all of his truth and finds all the truth that there is to be known in the law of God. He intently seeks to know this, his God and the God of creation who has revealed himself through his good order and specifically through his good word and his law. The psalmist now outlines then what's the result of the blessed man's life, the fruits of him. He says there in verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. So the blessed man's life is not one who walks, stands, or sits with sinners, but one who finds all of his sustenance, finds all of his identity, finds all of his hope in the law of God, what God has revealed to, him, to his people through that law. And the result is a flourishing life, a progressive and growing life of faith that yields abundant fruit and, and, and does so over time, not in an instant. Oh, how impatient we are to wait on the fruit of faith to form, are we not? How many times have we tried to shortcut our faith? And, and just, I mean, in, in your spiritual life, in your own lives, in the, the choices we make in our life, we're just not patient people. We're always wanting things to move faster than God was. But he says here, it will, it will yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. It means this is a life that never ages. It's a life, a picture of a life that truly prospers. And I think this is one picture that I think sometimes we as Christians can miss so easily, right? That the life of faith is a life that takes a lifetime to live. How many times we're just not, we're so focused on the short-term dog and pony shows of life. What can get me the next thing as, as um, faster? New house, new job, 
better health, better friends, better money. But the life of faith that, that prospers is what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It'll take us the rest of our lives to get where God wants us to be. And even then, we'll have eternity to figure that out. So that's the first answer to the question of who's it for, but who's it not for? That's the second answer. He says it very clearly in verse 4. The Psalter is not for the wicked. The church has got to understand that, that there's nothing hopeful in the gospel for the wicked. It only holds out judgment. We don't enjoy that. We don't relish that. We don't take... We don't, we're not happy in that. It says there in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're not, they're not trees planted. And they're not trees that will prosper for a lifetime and into eternity. They were not leaf that will not wither. No, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You notice how he reverses the same thing here? The blessed man doesn't walk with, stand with, sit with. Why? Well, God answers the question here. Because the wicked will know nothing but judgment. God's wrath when it's all done. The, the, the wicked cannot stand before God, a holy God. Only the blessed man can stand, the blessed woman can stand before God. And in verse 6, he says, The Lord knows the ways of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the ways of the righteous. Why? Why will the wicked perish? Why is this life not for them? Because God is with the righteous, not the wicked. God is with the blessed. The idea that God knows here in this last passage, the way of the wicked is will perish, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous idea is there's it's a deeply intimate connection that God has with his people. It's his, it's his presence, his abiding presence. It's an intimate connection of presence among God's people. Wonderful picture of what life is supposed to be. These two options. You can live the blessed life or you can live the wicked life. That's the two options that are set before every last one of us here. And if the astute reader and listener here this morning would already pick up on where this is coming from. This is a recapitulation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is it not? This is a recapitulation that God created mankind in his own image, and mankind was created in a happy and holy state. That mankind was created to bear God's image in the world and multiply and fill the earth and cultivate and having dominion over the whole and happy at, at, over the earth as happy and holy ambassadors. I love the Second London Confession on this one. This is uh, chapter 4, verses, uh, paragraphs 2 and 3. After God had made all the other creatures, he created humanity. He made them male and female, it says, the rational and the immortal souls, thereby making them suited to that life lived unto God for which they were created. They were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge and righteousness and true holiness. They had the law of God written on their hearts and the power to fulfill it. Even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. In addition to the law written on their hearts, they received a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as long as they obeyed this command, they were happy. They were holy in their communion with God and their dominion as God's creatures. 
Mankind, though, has fallen from that place. We know this in Genesis 3. Mankind did not remain in his holy and happy state, has now been plunged under sin and death, and is now at enmity with God and stands under God's righteous wrath. Adam and Eve forsook their birthright. They exchanged it for the fleeting life of seeking a kingdom from, for, from, them, from among themselves and from under the life of under God's good rule and blessing. And so in the end, Psalm 1 is a beautiful, good picture that it paints for us about what good life should look like, but it only reminds us of the despair that that good life right now or outside of Christ is beyond our reach. See, see, many of us read that, we could read that passage and we automatically go, okay, so if I do this, God loves me and God will be with me. And so I got to be on the right team. The problem is, according to Genesis, we're all on the wrong team. And so Psalm 1 is a reminder of what life was meant to be, and it reminds all of us of where we stand and now how we are separated and cannot attain the blessed life on our own. You and I can only read. That's the reason why Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are hinged. Because Psalm 1 only offers us law. It only offers us what God demands and what God says is right and good. And it, and it leaves us, if we were to read it by itself, without the hope of ever attaining it. Because of what has happened in the posterity of Adam. Under which all of us stand in his line. Amen? But that's the wonderful thing about why the Psalms are constructed the way they do. Because we don't have any fear here this morning. This is why the Psalter is meant to be read through the lenses of both Psalm 1 and 2. The Psalm 2 answers the most important question. How can, who can, have the blessed life then? And he answers it by illustrating throughout the Psalm a tale of two kingdoms. Verses 1 through 3, I'll read again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kingdoms of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from among us. In other words, the first kingdom is this kingdom of creation, this kingdom of Adam. And in its objective, its sole objective is to rage against God. Friends, this is what every one of us in here was born into. I don't care how long you've been welcome a believer. You, you, you need to remember, this is where we all started. And since the garden, the kingdom of creation in Adam seeks a kingdom among themselves and among their own finite and futile counsel with one another, as it says there in this passage. And they set themselves against God and His anointed, i.e. His Son, Jesus. In case you didn't read in between the lines there. They aim to thwart the rule of God and the Son, as well as unhinge themselves from the law of God. Look what it says there. They let us burst their bonds. In other words, they want to they cause havoc upon the rule of God and the Son, Jesus. But more so, let us unstrap ourselves, if you will. Let us cast away their cords from among us. We will defiantly push back against God's rule and ways in our life. And friends, you and I know that this is all too real, and it has been that way since the garden. 
And so then God's response in verses 4 through 9 is, it it is so good. (laughs) Look what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs and he holds them in derision. I know that might sound a little hard for us to hear that this is how God's responding to the wrath, but he has every right to respond to the anti-God realm the way that he does. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And he will say to them, I have set my king. You're not the real king. None of the kings that represent the mankind, they're not the real king. No, I have set my king on Zion and my holy hill. See, I love how he, it kind of goes back to connects to Psalm 1 again. One, uh, Psalm 1, verse 1. The blessed man does not sit with scoffers, does not sit with mockers. Why? Because God laughs at the ones who laugh at him. And he looks at their, their, their puny ways and he says, you laugh now, you scoff now, you mock now, but you have no idea what's in store if you do not repent and turn your, your ways and turn and find your rest in me and under my good rule and blessing. He speaks to those pseudo-rulers of this puny kingdom made in their own image. And he does so with righteous fury, righteous sovereign rule over all of them. And he tells them they need to be terrified of the consequences that will come if they remain in such a place. I have enthroned my king, the one true king. I've enthroned him in Zion and he is on my holy hill. See, Zion was the seat, is the seat for which God rules and gathers his his elect to himself who will be his people forever. And this people will be a display, not just in themselves. That's why what uh, what Kirk was saying earlier, we we don't live for earthly kingdoms. We don't don't live to to reestablish earthly kingdoms. We are a kingdom unto ourselves and we are displaying in this kingdom his righteous and sovereign rule over all creation. And, And they both... They both invite the sinner to take refuge in this new kingdom. But also to warn sinners of their pending doom. The king here, as I noted a minute ago, is none other than the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Son Jesus who came to live a life that we did not live and could not live, that we have been plunged under death in Adam. He died a death that you and I deserve to die and live separate from God for eternity. But Jesus took it upon himself for those who put their faith in him. And he went to the grave and he conquered the grave and he rose from the grave. This is the king that is being mentioned here in Psalm 2, verses Four, um, eight and nine. Excuse me. I've enthroned him. And this king, he says, look, what, keep on going with me. The nations are his heritage. No matter how much the nations uh, 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 claim their autonomy, no matter how much the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Adam, claims their autonomy from their God, the ends of the earth are his. He will rule both as judge and as savior. 
He will break the kingdom of Adam, it says, with a rod. He will dash them to pieces and they will spend eternity in judgment apart from God's grace and mercy. I know that sounds harsh. I know that sounds hard and no one wants to think about a dear loved one in this room that is living separate from God this morning. But let me say this. If that's where you are, please share Jesus with them. Take the moment. Don't let them pass from this moment, this life to the next, without knowing that king, the one true king. And so then God, in verses 10 through 12, warns them, this is my king, this is his rule, he is king over you kings. And even as the nations rage, even as the nations drag out their rebellion against him, and they reject him, Verses 10 and 12 are God's mercy to them. I mean, just look at it. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. God will redeem those who turn away from themselves and they put their righteous fear in the God of the universe, King Jesus. He invites them to bow to Him, to pay homage to Him, to kiss the Son means to... It's like a signet ring, right, of a king that you're paying homage to. He's saying, bow to the real king. Give your life to him. Trust in him. He will save you. He will protect you. He will provide for you. And he will bless you. And that's what the whole point of it is. Like in the garden, when God created everything before the fall, what did he do? He had a people, Adam and Eve, in his place, Eden, under his rule and blessing. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, but have life. And, and in this picture, all we're seeing is that the... the, the God is promising that I'm going to restore a people who will one day live in my home, a place, and they will live for eternity under my rule and blessing. He says, you can find redemption there too. Turn from your foolish ways. And then God calls the kingdom of heaven, in verse, the end of verse 12, blessed are all those who take refuge in him, the righteous, and he says, you, you are blessed. Why? So here it is, guys. Here's, here's, the, here's the answer to the question. How do you get the blessed life? Take refuge in him. You're not holy enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not smart enough. You're not intuitive enough. You're not brilliant enough. You don't have enough political theory to fix the world. You don't have enough science in your brain to know how to fix every health issue going on in the world. You don't. You don't. You don't. Repent. And take refuge in Him. The answer to the question of how we find blessed life is to take refuge in King Jesus. The blessed life is for those who rest and refuge in the righteous King who comes to restore a new Eden to the happy and holy state that we were created in. As the Second London Confession says. The blessed man in Psalms 1 is none other truly than King Jesus. Why? Because you and I can't be blessed because we're in Adam. But when he comes in as our representative head, as he is the one who comes in and is, substitutes himself for us, he becomes the blessed man and all those who desire to be blessed are under him. Amen. And they take rest in him. 
This new Eden is a work of the Son who has lived that holy life that Adam did not. And again, as I mentioned ago, I just got to keep saying this, right? He died a death for those who cannot live, cannot be holy and happy on their own and deserve the wrath of God. And he rose from that grave to give them a, give us a new, uh, give us who know him as Redeemer and friend, a present resurrected life, as well as a one day new and better life that you and I can't even begin to imagine. So here it is. That's the gate. Psalms 1 and 2. The, the worship guide to the Psalter is for those who want the blessed life who take refuge in Christ. The next 150 chapters, or 148 chapters, they're for you, friend. When we get into text this summer on those who've struggled with sin and, and we deal with Psalm 51... Those who are experiencing life's troubles in Psalm 23, those who are experiencing anxiety and fear, that's for you who have taken refuge in the Son and our Savior Jesus. The Psalter is for the one who takes shelter in the man, Jesus the righteous, who through his righteousness invites us and guides us to worship God in this sin broken life when we worship him through songs of thanksgiving and adoration through our grief and our sorrow through our guilt and our shame from sin through our fear and anger through our loneliness and isolation like that is now been given to you and me in the Psalter and to be reminded of God is with you that's why we worship. That's why we tried to our level best here at Grace Church to put forth a worship liturgy that does not point to what happens here with the instruments or me as a personality or, or any other thing. It is to point you and I together as brothers and sisters to the real life of, and long and lasting life of faith until Jesus returns. And we can only do this in Christ because Christ completes and fulfills true worship, the true vision of worship given to us in the Psalter. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. And as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table this morning, it is my hope and heart this morning that as we come to the table and are served and reminded of this wonderful sacrament that is given to God's people to remind them of the work of our Savior Jesus, that we come with hearts filled with joy. Even as we bring our grief and bring our difficulties, we, we come to Him, knowing that He has invited us to the table of the Lord, and we remind Him, remind ourselves, that we dine with the Jesus. We, one day we will dine at that table forever and ever. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.